um, underlying um, critical functions of racist nativism is that there is a perceived threat, right? And that's when we begin to see these surges is that when there's a perceived threat of a popu- of a population of color, right? That's when we begin to see these upticks in um, instances of violence with Asian Americans being targeted right now in this moment, right? Because of the kind of ongoing pandemic, we see that happening. There's a perceived threat of just existence, right? Just being, just being in a space. And, and that's something that we've seen um, historically over and over again, which is, you know, um, so what we're trying to do is is figure out, you know, how do we begin to disrupt some of these cycles in our schools for our students, Mm -hmm. right, who are are experiencing this every day. Mm -hmm. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we're discussing the racist rhetoric from politicians and other figures in U.S. culture and the implications for harm, activism, and social change with the two editors and also authors of the new book, Why They Hate Us, How Racist Rhetoric Impacts Education. Very timely indeed. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com or on Twitter. Today's episode is sponsored by Stylus and Leadership. Stylus is proud to be a sponsor of Student Affairs Now podcast. Browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at styluspub.com. You can use promo code SANOW for 30% off all their books, plus free shipping. You can find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at styluspub. Leadership is a not-for-profit organization that has been partnering with colleges, universities, and organizations in creating transformational leadership experiences since 1986. With a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world, Leadership provides both virtual and in-person leadership development opportunities for students and professionals. When you partner with Leadership, you'll receive quality development experiences that engage learners in topics of courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more about their virtual programs, please visit leadership.org slash virtual programs. You can also learn more about their organization on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach, and you can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm hosting this conversation today from Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is the ancestral homeland of both the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Today, we're exploring the racist rhetoric in our culture, its impact and solutions to move us forward. Let's meet our two guests for today. Today, we get a real treat. We get usual host, Susana Munoz, is here as a guest, and your co-editor and scholar and friend. Uh, So let's get a chance to meet both of you. Uh, Lindsay, let's begin with you. Tell us a little bit about you and uh, how you came to this particular project, and then we'll hear from Susana. Sure. Um, My name is Lindsay Perez-Huber. I'm an associate professor in the College of Education at Cal State Long Beach. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, And so this work um, connects, I think, most closely to to my work around um, race and education and immigration, um, looking at how anti-Latinx racism emerges in educational trajectories of 
Latinx students um, um, and, and also kind of trying to understand the, the forms of systemic racism that students are experiencing in school systems. Um, there's, it, it also connects, I think, in some ways to my work around racial microaggressions as well. So kind of the everyday forms of racism and racist nativism that students of color encounter. Well, thanks for that introduction, Lindsay. Really appreciate that. And the microaggressions, I think we're getting you on a podcast episode coming up here soon. So we're giving our audience a double dose of you, which is wonderful to do. Susanna, uh, tell folks who don't know you, who haven't listened to your other episodes as a host, uh, tell us a little bit about you as a guest and your work with this book. Sure. So again, Susana Munoz, she, her, hers, a pronouns. I'm coming to you from the land of the ancestral homelands of the Ute, Arapaho, and Cheyenne peoples. And um, I am an associate professor and uh, program chair of the higher education leadership program at Colorado State University. Um, and the way I, I arrived to this work is is very similar to, to, to Lindsay in the sense that, you know, working with and for undocumented students and um, um, immigrant uh, communities um, in, my, in my research and, and really tackling notions of <clears throat> anti-immigration sentiments. I think, um, you know, I, I fangirl Lindsay all the time because I cite her, her stuff and her framing. It's super useful to um, frame, um, you know, what's happening with undocumented college students from like a racist nativist um, lens. And so I think what the way I come into the work and is, is also thinking about how, how the elections have impacted our college students and, um, and, and just really thinking intently about our administrators as well and what, what needs to change. Um, and how do we handle sort of this really, really fine line around um, free speech versus hate speech um, that comes in many forms on our college campuses. So I'm happy to be here and excited for the conversation. Wonderful. Well, let's hear a little bit about this book, this project that you've been working on probably for years now and is now out and available for folks. Uh, Lindsay, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book, how it came to be, and a quick outline for context. Sure. So I think the book, if I think back um, kind of where it started, um, I actually, I, I was thinking about this the other day about Susanna. Um, it was at, at a conference we were at, at UC Riverside, um, when we were uh, asked to come in and talk uh, about experiences of undocumented students there. And Susanna and I were, you know, had, were having a side conversation. And she was telling me, did you hear what happened at, at Iowa State? And I said, no, what happened? And so she's telling me about um, during the time Trump is just beginning, you know, his campaigning. Um, and and there was a, a rally there um, of, of, of students and, um, you know, students are, um, you know, talking about and, and yelling, uh, you know, um, relating white supremacy to, to Trump. Right. And um, there was one young girl who said something like vote for white supremacy uh, to show her support, you know, for this candidate. And it was this moment where I was like, whoa, what's going on? Right. Like, like really wanting to understand what was happening, because, um, you know, racism has always been there, um, but it was emerging in kind of a particular way that we hadn't really seen um, in kind of recent right recent decades. 
And so really wanting to understand how the political context was now kind of changing the discourse around racism to these more kind of overt, right, support of racism and, and white supremacy. Um, and, and, and so I think it was kind of like in conversation with Susana, and this was, I mean, year, this was, I guess it was in 2015 when the campaign had just started. Um, and then um, really paying attention and, and kind of documenting, you know, what was happening from there is, is trying to understand how this campaign um, really had kind of a, a significant impact on the discourses around racism that were targeting uh, Latinx immigrants in particular, right, um, and, and, and wanting to kind of theorize that and document it. Um, and, and help us understand what was happening at that moment. And, and so that's, I think, um, kind of where the very early ideas of, of the book came from. Uh, and, and then, I guess, um, the, the actual work on the book um, started, maybe it was about a year and a half ago, Susanna, mm-hmm. um, you know, as, uh, you know, the, the election year was coming, really wanting to have a book that would document the experiences of how this racist rhetoric was impacting students in our schools and particularly students of color, especially immigrant students. Um, And so that's when Susanna and I started, you know, talking about, um, you know, working together on a book that would invite people who were doing that research to, um, you know, um, have chapters that would really lay out, you know, how this mattered for students in in their everyday lives and in their schooling experiences, both in K-12 and also in higher ed. Mm -hmm. Well, I I love this story about, you know, a a partnership and a a particular place and hearing a particular thing. And then from that moment in a campaign in 2015, uh, the rhetoric to me seems like it has just been escalating, escalating. And maybe the feelings and ideas underneath it uh, have always been there, but the boldness and the explicitness and the willing to be public about some of this really seems to have escalated. Susanna, what would you would you want to add? And, and we'd love a little quick outline of the book for context. Yeah, so I think what um, what Lindsay was was saying is that we we were all watching what was happening on our college campuses, and um, you know, with that event at Iowa State, I think was like you know a profound. And it was videotaped, right? And so it was like you got to see it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what this woman said, and you know, she just sort of ripped down a sign that somebody was holding and protests of um of, of Trump. And so I think we 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 continue to see that embolden this. And you know, one of the visuals that I often use in presentations is that um, you know, at Colorado State, you know, all our Lori Student Center, you know, students build a cardboard wall, you know, saying this is Trump's wall, you know, and, and I think that to me was like, this is, this is pretty emboldened and blatant what we're seeing. And not only that, we were also seeing a lot of um, white nationalist paraphernalia being posted on our campuses, you know, around um, white nationalist identities. And, um, and, you know, and when we, we both were looking at what we call the Trump effect, what the Southern Poverty Law Center called the Trump, coined the, the Trump effect is sort of this heightened um, emboldenedness, you know, in our schools. And so, you know, what we outline in this book is, you know, sort of like in the educational pipeline 
of how this rhetoric has impacted, you know, school children, you know, and how principals have been noticing and heightened um, hate, hate messages in schooling um, and understanding, you know, how, how it's also, um, you know, mitigated, you know, are our principals talking about this? And so we, we, what's really cool about this book is that I, it really touches like every aspect of the educational pipeline uh, mm-hmm. from community college to, you know, K through 12, and then also showing how kids are really resisting you know, how using their art and voice mm-hmm. um, to really resist. And I think what was really profound for me and the beautiful contributions that the authors make is that um, they're, they're, they utilize the moment to um, help children really understand their context and really what, what's at stake and to really fight back and, and to say that I care this much about my community um, I want this to stop. Um, and so I think that uh, the book really does a great job of, of outlining that. And I think the conclusion chapter was, I think, I think it was really hard for me and Lindsay to conclude this book because stuff just kept happening, right? And so it was like, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, like another black man was murdered. You know, we we need to acknowledge this, you know, and another incident and another incident, you know, and I think we were, we were closing or submitting the entire manuscript. And then January 6th happened with the, um, you know, insurrection at the Capitol. And we're just like, oh my, I like, I think both Lindsay and I were like, I wish I could have taken back our book and written more about that because it connects to everything that we were writing about. So so yeah, so I feel um, this really captures sort of what we're not only historically where we have been rooted, but currently um, where we're at. Great, great. Well, I'm so glad that you uh, moved a, a conversation to this project so timely, so uh, prescient of you to see this coming and wanting to document the impact on students. And I love how you have organized the authors in really lots of different perspectives, the art, the history, um, theoretical and conceptual framing, praxis, um, really looking at a lot of different things from a lot of different angles. And, and there's really a tone here of, here's the problem, here's how it affects people, here's how people are resisting, and, and there's some possibilities here. So, Lindsay, tell us a little bit about how you framed the book and your thinking as you were uh, organizing it and reaching out to authors and organizing chapters. Yeah, so I think the way that Susanna and I um, really were intentional about the framing was to use critical race theory as kind of a, a foundational point to theorize the, the racist rhetoric that we saw happening. And so from CRT, um, you know, we use the conceptual framework of racist nativism that really looks at the intersections of race and immigration status and how it matters in uh, the lives of, of immigrant students. Uh, and so, you know, and, and also what Susanna mentioned earlier is, you know, trying to figure out what, what was happening with this kind of emboldened behavior, right, that was both 
um, you know, a, a more comfortable performance of white supremacy in terms of, mm. right, the, the building of the cardboard walls and the and posting of white supremacist p- propaganda, but also the real violence that was being perpetrated upon communities of color, right, by, um, by white nationalists and, and um, you know, um, neo-Nazis and, and what was happening during the time. Um, Charlottesville is also something that we talk about in the book. Right. Right. Um, that, you know, all of a sudden we see this kind of surge in white nationalism. And so um, the introduction really tries to kind of set the foundation of, you know, how do we use CRT to theorize what we see happening and racist nativism? So looking at also how cultural theory can help us understand how, you know, what, what, what's happening is that these discourses of racism and white supremacy begin to influence behaviors of people, right, through articulatory practices. So this is like some of Stuart Hall's work. That um, right, so we have these beliefs and ideologies in in racism and white supremacy operating. We see those clearly, but those are really what is directly influencing the behaviors of people to enact right building of cardboard walls or to perpetrate like actual violence or to come mm-hmm. out and um, you know uh, march around Robert E. Lee on their on their college campuses. Um, and, and so that's kind of how the, the introduction is framed and also really acknowledging and Susanna does this also in the following chapters. We've also been very intentional to talk about, as you mentioned earlier, history. Right. And how, yes, you know, the, we can look at the Trump era, but this didn't start with Trump. And, it, and as we see now, it certainly didn't end with Trump. Right. right. And so this this racism and these articulatory practices of racist nativism are have a have a historical legacy that goes back many, many, uh, many, many years in, in the U.S. And then in, cha- in the in the first chapter, Susanna kind of extends on um, some of the, the those frames that are that are um, introduced in, in the beginning and then expands on them to talk about imperialistic reclamation. Before we move there, could you just give us a little bit more about racist nativism? Just tell us a little bit more about what that is and what that means. Yeah, so racist nativism is a concept that was theorized from CRT that was really meant to understand that intersection between race and immigration status. And so how are Latinx students in particular racialized as immigrant, whether they were they are immigrant or maybe born here, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, so racist nativism is also placed within or situated within kind of a historical context to understand how various immigrant groups of color throughout the U.S. have been targeted by racist nativism, right? So this idea that you are perpetually a perpetual foreigner. Um, but at the same time, what's important about racist nativism is that there is this kind of racialized foreignness but that has a function. So there is a function to the racialization of foreignness for people of color, and that is to uphold the status of, of who is perceived to be Native, which in, historically in the U.S. has, has perceived to be um, white folks, right? Yeah. And so there's kind of a dual kind of function of, of racist nativism that upholds the status of the perceived Native um, uh, and, and this is problematic, right? Because we know that uh, um, right indigenous communities have have been here um, and preceded um, white settlers for you know thousands of years. Um, but also, there's this process of racialized um, foreignness that people of color have been targeted by historically. Yeah, thank you so much. That's very helpful. I really appreciate that, uh, Susana. What were you going to add here about the framing? 
No, I think one of the other um, framings that we used here too is is to talk about sort of the intersection of interest convergence and whiteness as property. And so interest convergence is um, was coined by Derek Bell, and it 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 really it just insinuates that you know um, there you know where that benefits to people of color um, are only um, you know, delivered when it also benefits white people, right? And so as long as that there's that um, interest um, for whiteness, I think that's where it's a lot more palatable. So when we talk about, you know, whiteness as property, we talk about sort of this notion of how to sustain white supremacy and how that's systemic, but also um, we see in our society sort of this notion of imperialistic reclamation, which is sort of the reclaiming of um, those, you know, those perceived benefits to people of color. And so one one of the, you know, prime examples is that we often use as affirmative action, right? And so, you know, only when it benefits you know, and it has benefited white people, um, you know, do, do we allow that? But when we see, you know, more minoritized bodies, you know, um, sort of in, in those spaces of, with, of whiteness, and that's sort of that where that reclamation comes in. And so we see that, you know, being articulated, you know, through racist nativism. And so it's not, um, you know, it's not a surprise that, you know, there is this, you know, anti-immigrant, um, you know, uh, rhetoric out there because, you know, some, the, our, our leader, you know, a former leader uh, was, you know, um, you know, using racist rhetoric to frame this population. And so what happens is that um, there's this emboldenedness to sort of take back what was sort of perceived as, you know, um, whiteness, right? Take back sort of things that were originally deemed you know, for certain people. And so we, we see that in terms of um, the, the demographic, you know, changes that, you know, and again, you know, we have to really, you know, I go back to Lindsay's chapter where she talks about, you know, like in 19, what was it in 1990, what was the um, Proposition 180 or yeah. Uh, the prop, yeah. So, you know, the, say that again. Prop, Prop 187 in 1994. Right. And so, you know, that was all framed around save our state from, from immigrants, mm-hmm. right? And so, and that passed. And so I think what we're, we, we continue to see these patterns articulated in not only, you know, from a historical sense, but contemporary, we see these patterns of, you know, they're demographically, there's too many, there's too many you know, right. minoritized bodies. Demographically, there's too many immigrants. And so there is, continues to be sort of this emboldened backlash. And so that's how um, the interest convergence and whiteness as property, when they intersect with one another, you know, we get this imperialistic reclamation where it's that, okay, we need to take this back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that's some, what we're seeing. There's some real uh, heavy lifting terms, racist nativism, I know. interest <laughs> convergence, whiteness is property, imperialistic reclamation. Love learning about all of this. And, and both of you are so clear about 
how this connects. But what it's as, as I'm listening to this, it's reminding me that we we are now seeing that people who stormed the Capitol uh, predominantly came from the, the number one predictor was they came from counties where the white population was going down. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very tangible thing as you're pointing to um, these dynamics, these sociocultural factors, uh, and then the rhetoric leading to action and violence, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's there. So, uh, and I well, think tell that's us one. Oh, sorry. No, no, no go just, ahead. I think that's one of kind of the 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 um, underlying um, critical functions of racist nativism is that there is a perceived threat. Right. And that's when we begin to see these surges is that when there's a perceived threat of a pop of a population of color, right? That's when we begin to see these upticks in um, instances of violence with Asian Americans being targeted right now in this moment, right? Because of the kind of ongoing pandemic, we see that happening. There's a perceived threat of just existence, right? Just being, just being in a space. And and that's something that we've seen um, historically over and over again, which is, you know, um, so what we're trying to do is is figure out, you know, how do we begin to disrupt some of these cycles in our schools for our students, Mm -hmm. right, who are are experiencing this every day. Mm -hmm. And and the one thing that I would just, oh, I just wanted to add sort of, you know, what you said, Keith, in terms of like, you know, this fear of being replaced. That's exactly what it is, right? And so there's actually like historical documents and even anti-immigrant propaganda that was produced back in, you know, the early 1900s around replacement theory, right? And mm-hmm. and so you connect that to the chants from Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, you will not replace us. That's ex- that's that's exactly what's happening in terms of um what imperial rec- reclamation looks like well and you have these these trends these demographics then you have all of this rhetoric and some of the people using the rhetoric are violent some of them are using the rhetoric or giving permission they may not be violent themselves but that rhetoric gives permission to others which we see anybody who's been on a playground knows that if you uh mm-hmm. some people will talk the talk but not do it but they give permission for others to take that action right whether that's bullying or storming the Capitol or um, posting boxes, um, a lot of justification. I'd love to move to uh, the impacts and also some of the solutions. So Susanna, maybe you can begin by telling us about what, um, through this project and others, what you're seeing as the impacts of this rhetoric um, on all of us. So I th- I think the the number one impact that we that I sort of saw across all of the chapters was um, on on mental wellness right on mental mm-hmm. health in terms of what this rhetoric does to children you know on a deep level in terms of being learners um, and existing in spaces where that's a perpetual thing that they have to see on an ongoing basis not only within their school but in communities and so. Um, and so I think, you know, what, what I, what I liked about, um, what the authors had to offer is, you know, there, there has to be a point where we go beyond sort of like, um, you know, the dialogue, right? The dialogue is great. Um, you know, having more conversations, you know, I'm, you know, around, sort of these, um, decolonizing curriculums, you know, and really naming 
like white supremacy, really being authentic about, um, you know, how our country has, you know, um, framed immigrants, you know, from from the beginning. And so I think having those conversations is important and action. And so it's not enough to just leave it at the, at the, yes, we're going to train our way out of this, you know, we're going to, you know, talk through, you know, and do book clubs. And, you know, there has to be something um, entrenched, you know, within our schooling system, some notion of accountability pieces that really centers humanity, that really centers um, what does it mean to um, be anti-racist, you know, as a school, as a pedagogy, as a leader. Um, so I think those are the, so the, the impact and the, the, I think my, my wishes, <laughs> you know, is that this book just goes beyond, you know, the conversation that you, you really take a look at the book and see, okay, what, what are some systemic changes that we can be thinking about in, in how to create anti-racist schooling, um, mm -hmm. within our, you know, our system. Yeah, as you're talking about the dialogue and the, the, the value of dialogue, but that you know, I was reminded yep. of um, whose learning comes at whose expense, right? If we're going to have a lot of dialogue about whether certain people have equal humanity to others so that some people can discover that and learn that, who has to keep, continue justifying their existence and their humanity in the process of doing that? And what's the price that paid? And I think that that is a very difficult thing and oftentimes ignored um, as we focus on the learning of the dominant culture, the dominant narrative. Um, but then also, as you're talking about the learning and doing this, but moving to action, reminded of Paulo Freire's praxis, let's keep learning and then doing and then learning about how we did and do it better and, and continue in that ongoing cycle. Lindsay, what would you want to add here about impacts and potential solutions? Yeah, I think, you know, just building off of what Susanna is is mentioning about, I, I think um, one thing that cuts across all of the chapters also is the need for campus leadership, whether that's leadership in K-12 schools or leadership in higher ed, um, to really want to do something, right, to really be able to understand um, the history of racism in the U.S., which most of our leadership does not, right? We, we get that in, you know, very siloed disciplinary trainings and ethnic studies, which most folks, you know, don't have the opportunity to take or don't take um, in, in their own educational trajectories um, and, and understand how, right, what we see happening and what our students are experiencing every day are situated in much broader histories of, right, op oppressive um, conditions and experiences. Um, and, you know, for leaders to um, not place the responsibility of this work on their faculty of color, on their teachers of color, on their students of color, and, and to really take the responsibility to, to learn and to do it on their own and, and learn how to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the things that we talk about in the last chapter is how, mm -hmm. you know, both of us at, at, in our work as, as faculty, um, you know, there's a cultural taxation that happens when you are, you know, constantly the, the one being, um, you know, um, um, tagged to do or to consult or to ask questions. Um, it, it shouldn't it shouldn't be that way. Right. It mm -hmm. should be 
our campus leadership who begins to want to cultivate some of these skills and tools on their own to also be able to engage the work, which I think is really important, especially right now when so many schools and campuses and institutions are wanting to do anti-racist work. The labor is really playing out in very inequitable ways, and we see that happening all the time. Right, and there's a there's a tension there between wanting to center the the voices of the minoritized and the oppressed, um, with also not wanting to place that burden on them, which reinforces those systems of oppression. And um, I, I'm just thinking a lot lately about how we don't try and either or that, but how do we how do we go into the messiness of the both and of that, and wrestle with that. Susanna, what would you like to add here? No, I, I think the other component of this is is for institutions to really think about um, beyond performative activism, right? right? And so thinking about like, it's so, you know, these very beautiful messages that get sent out when, you know, events of injustice has happened. But, you know, I think it goes back to, okay, like if you're really committed to being anti-racist and pro-equity, compensate the, the people that are doing the work, compensate those centers that do the bulk of this work, compensate um, ethnic studies, compensate, you know, multicultural centers, compensates, you know, uh, students that are part of that educational process. And so I think, you know, that commitment without any compensation is not a commitment. And so I think that's one of the things that I get very frustrated about is that there's really great PR around equity, you know, with our institutions, but there's not necessarily like the institutional action and Mm -hmm. how to make really uh, courageous change within your institution to stop being um, a place that is um, you know, uphold whiteness um, mm-hmm. that we see on a constant level. So I'm always in tension with a higher education. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. always in tension with, you know, um, yes, being outspoken as an institution about these injustices, but, you know, mm-hmm. you need to also look at, you know, what's been going on in your own community to say, uh, we, you know, we need to do better and we, we need to do better in these ways. And this is what we're committed to doing in terms of mm-hmm. substantial institutionalized and holding people accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I'll get off my little I'm seeing her. No, uh, we, lo- we <laughs> love your soapbox, Susana. We love it. I'm seeing a real mirror here between what the book is sort of chronicling, which is the rhetoric and then the actions and violence that stems to that, to what you're calling mm-hmm. for is not just rhetoric about anti-racism and supporting students and faculty, but also actions to compensate, to shift policy, to add requirements, to uh, reorganize things, to do more than just do, as we've talked about in other contexts, performative land acknowledgements, to put out statements. I do think the the statements have gotten better. They used to be really bad statements. The statements now are getting much better. So that's progress. Now, how do we go from good statements to, we went from bad statements to good statements. How do we go from good statements to good action? Um, And hopefully there won't be sort of that bad action in between there. But um, there's a lot of space to go, as you pointed out, compensation, as we talked about ethnic studies, availability and requirements and making part of the general education so that we have a broader understanding of these issues in the context that organize and shapes every one of our lives, not just some of our lives. Um, 
What would you like to add here, uh, Lindsay, about the impacts and solutions? We have a lot of folks who uh, are listening to this who, who are leaders in, in higher education, um, whether they're uh, in positional leadership or they have the voice of the ears of students who look up to them and admire them as, as new professionals who they can see relate to them. Um, thoughts about ways that folks who are listening to this can move from the rhetoric uh, to some some solutions and some action. Yeah, I think one thing to think about for ad- administrators is that um, you know more and more our demographics are shifting. Our uh, those in power though are not, and so what does that mean to be someone in a position of power who comes from a very different experience, a very different background than the institutions and schools and and students inside those places? Um, look like or are from. And I think that, you know, one thing that administrators need to start thinking about is, um, you know, what does it mean to um, let go of a little bit of their power to lift up the the students and the communities uh, that they are committed to if we're talking about equity? What, What does that look like? Because there's some power dynamics that have to shift in order to do this work. Uh, and so, so what is it that needs to be let go? And, and when I say, you know, letting go of power, that means not in, not necessarily individually. Some of that can happen individually, but also in terms of the ways that we structure our institutions and our schools to operate, right? What, what needs to happen? What do we need to let go of in order to really think about how we can engage equity, how we can engage anti-racism? I think that's a, a, a really interesting kind of way to think about um, moving forward, um, as you said, kind of in, into this kind of process of a praxis, of, as Freire calls, right? Mm-hmm. Is that in that process that Freire talks about when we're really able to engage in liberatory praxis, that's when there's some power let go and that mm-hmm. the people, uh, the oppressed are lifted up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have to start thinking about what that looks like within our institutions. Mm-hmm. I'd love, I want to, we're going to move towards concluding here in a moment and in our last question. But before we get that, you know, I, I have learned by, by editing books that where I began and where I ended up as the editor is very different. And I learned so much in the process of, of hearing the voices of the authors. And I know you've, you've invited other authors in. You've both also written chapters. I'd love to hear from each of you. What's sort of like the big aha moment that you had through this process of a year and a half now plus of writing the book? What really uh, was the thing that, that you learned through the process that, that is grabbing your attention? Hmm. There was a lot of aha moments. I mean, writing a book during the pandemic was a, like a huge aha. <laughs> like, that was a lot. Well, not just a, a but, pandemic, but the right. racial uprest, uh, right. COVID, Everything. virtual right. politics, insurrections. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I'm grateful that I got to do this along with Lindsay, because I think um, I was able to learn from her in this process in many ways. But I think, you know, the the aha moment for me w- was really about how it's it's not just Latinx communities. It's not just, it, it's, it just spans across people of color in terms of, um, you know, the, the racist, you know, rhetoric with the Muslim ban. Um, we see that with the, the, the virus has impacted, you know, 
um, Asians and Asian Americans. And so I think, you know, as, you know, as I, we, we were editing and reading, I gained much more, um, I guess, an understanding of the importance of the, the theory and, and the importance of where, where, where we, we should be interrogating um, these issues that we're seeing and how um, interrogating race and racism and white supremacy has to really be at the core of all of our conversations. Um, mm -hmm. And, and so I think for me, it was, it's, ex it was exciting to get to the point of reading, you know, seeing the book in, in, in real life, but also, I, you know, understanding that um, there's so much more, much, much, much more work to do <laughs> mm -hmm. as well. So, um, but yeah, that was my, Mm -hmm. uh, well, you're really, uh, what I'm hearing that is the, the interconnections of struggle, the interconnections between mm -hmm. um, Latinx folks and DACA and Asian and Asian Americans all experiencing this racist nativism in very different ways uh, to indigenous peoples and indigenous issues. Um, so much interconnectedness here. Lindsay, what, what were one or two of your aha moments as you went through this process? Um, I think just in terms of like logistics, um, this is my kind of first edited book. And so just to do this work like in community with Susana, mm -hmm. in community with our chapter contributors, um, it was just, uh, I think, an aha move moment, um, which isn't necessarily an aha movement. Like I, I always knew that this was important, right? And, and doing this work in community really changes um, the experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it, more of just something I enjoyed about the process was working with Susana on this and, you know, working and, and having conversations with our, our chapter contributors about, you know, their writing and their understanding and, and their work was really, really important. And just I mean, just made the, the work and the process so much better. Mm -hmm. um, the, the second thing I, I think is, is just thinking about what you're saying, Keith, uh, about the hope right and possibility that is 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 there that this book kind of highlights about the intersecting experiences of various communities of color um and and what we've seen since it was published right the mm -hmm. the most recent kind of anti-asian hate that we see happening right now that is also tied into exactly what we're trying to 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 do in this book to understand <clears throat> and that's to to see how right the experiences of communities of color are so interconnected and that there is some real possibility for collective action and collective change in um, in, in what we're seeing and how various communities are being targeted, but also thinking about what are our collective responses, right? And how do we come mm -hmm. together to collectively engage in resistance? Mm -hmm. I love that the, the theme of hope is really um, standing out for me in, in looking at this book. This is not a book about victimhood. It is about the hurts and pains and the causes, but also about the possibility mm -hmm. of the hope about what's around the corner, about what people are doing, how people are resisting. And uh, I think that's really powerful. And that's exactly what aha moments are, Lindsay. I, I thought aha moments were when we learned something new, but I, I learned that aha moments are when someone gives us language for something we've known all along. Right. And mm -hmm. I, I love those aha moments. Well, we are running out of time. And as you both know, this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. And we always like to end with the question, what are you thinking, troubling or pondering now? So it might be something from the book. It might be something from today's conversation or something that's really just with you in this moment as we conclude this conversation. 
Uh, mm -hmm. Susanna, what are you uh, with right now? Mm. Um, I, I'm excited for the conversations that will be produced as a result of the book. And so I'm, I'm excited to, um, you know, to, to have, you know, leaders and administrators, you know, read it, but I'm pondering also that, you know, the violence still continues and mm -hmm. it's been um, taxing and um, to hold all the things that have happened um, since, you know, at the end of the election, you know, mm -hmm. and so I, I um, so I'm, I'm, I'm holding all of the folks, um, partic in particular, our um, Asian American siblings, you know, in our field, um, holding them near and dear to my heart at the moment. Mm -hmm. Lindsay? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, um, echoing what Susanna is talking about is just recognizing and um, acknowledging the, the pain that the Asian American community is experiencing right now. Um, something, you know, we're hearing about things almost every day um, that are continuing to happen um, and, and, and just really, you know, um, recognizing that pain and that, that hurt that's being, that's being caused and perpetrated. Um, thinking about, you know, what can we do, I think is, a, is another question that, you know, um, I'm, I'm continuing, you know, we're always thinking about, but really there's some urgency to that in terms of um, how do we address anti-Asian hate? How do we address anti-Latinx hate? How do we address anti-Blackness, which are all questions that institutions are grappling with right now? And, and thinking about, right, um, who needs to be at the table, right, in, the, in these discussions? Um, and, and ensuring that um, in, in terms of everyday practice and what we do at our institutions, that there's an opportunity for all of the important stakeholders to be at the table to make these decisions about how we're, to, how we're going to disrupt what we see happening. Um, and so that's something I've just been thinking about with, with some work that I'm, that I'm doing right now at my institution. Um, and, and just kind of being hopeful, I think, being hopeful that, you know, in in all that we do, even if, you know, how, no matter how small our sphere, we feel our sphere of influences are, that there's change to be made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love, I love you ending on hope and, and not a, not a naive hope, I hope that really recognizes the reality of what is going on, but says that we have some agency to make the world a better place tomorrow than it is today. So that's powerful. Thank you so much to both of you for being awesome guests today. And uh, thanks for your wonderful book. It's a great contribution. I learned a lot reading it and in the conversation today. And thank you for centering perspectives that too often are overlooked. So thanks to both of you. To our listeners, you can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to our Student Affairs Now newsletter. You get that each Wednesday with the latest episode that we're sharing with you. You can also browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com, which the marvelous Heather Shea has organized into the ACPA NASPA professional competencies. Um, thanks to our sponsors today, Leadership and Stylus Publishing. Please subscribe to the podcast, invite others to subscribe and share on social or leave a five-star review. It really helps conversations like this reach more folks and build a community so we can continue to make this free for you. Again, I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks to our fabulous guests today and to everyone who's watching and listening. Make it a great week. Thank you all. Thank you.